Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Before we get into our episode today, we'd like to ask you to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast streaming service. It helps OnDocs grow. Welcome to OnDocs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis, Nam's away this week shooting for The Thread, TVO's new current affairs show. You should check that out if you haven't already. It's really good. On today's episode, we're talking with longtime friend of the podcast, Astra Taylor, about the movement for debt relief. My goal as an organizer with the Debt Collective is obviously to build power and to change the system. My goal as a filmmaker is to capture people actually thinking and listening and engaging in the kinds of conversations that I think are really important and necessary. But really, you know, I think, I think I want us to think together. That's the goal. And that's why we've invited all of you. And we're actually in an amazing political moment. There's a lot to be afraid of. And yet there's incredible possibility. That was Astra leading the conversation in her doc, You Are Not Alone. That's loan spelled L-O-A-N. She's part of an organization called the Debt Collective, which is a union of debtors who propose solutions to debt. Now, there's a good chance you borrowed money at some point in your life. Maybe you needed to take out a loan from a bank because of an emergency, or maybe you got a little something called OSAP to help pay for university. I know it took me seven years to pay off my student loan. Astra's film brings together academics, economists, and just everyday regular people to talk about how their debt, mostly student debt, has affected their ability to start their lives. I did get the degree. I got the bachelor's. But at the end of the day, I had this 200 plus thousand dollar of student debt. So trying to go to a bank and get a, a loan or a mortgage, it was like, they're like, yeah, right. <laughs> like, are you serious? Sometimes I think I made my situation worse off going to college, but that was the reason I, I did it because I just wanted to make a better life yeah. for me and my kids. So. Does that resonate with other people? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. In our conversation, we talk about how student debt prevents marginalized people from getting ahead, how the pandemic was actually good for the debt cancellation movement, and much more. Stay with us. Well, Astra Taylor, welcome back to the podcast. Oh my God, I'm so happy to be here. You were our first ever interview for OnDocs. Really? Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> you were our very first. It's, this is a, we've come full circle. You're back again. Thank you. I love that. Well, thanks for having me again. Well, you're welcome. And, and when we had you on, we were talking about What is Democracy, your film uh, from 2018. And it's been a few hectic years uh, in the last four years, definitely with the pandemic and obviously with political polarization. I wonder what you think about, um, well, I guess I wonder what you think about the last four years, and, and especially in the context of your film, What is Democracy? Yeah. Well, I mean, what is democracy? It's, it's a question I'm still asking and grappling with. I mean, I haven't made another feature film since I finished that production, but I have been continuing my work as a writer. I've made a few short films and, and really I have been working as an organizer. I um, helped found something called the Debt Collective, which is a union for debtors with, with its roots in Occupy Wall Street. So I've been organizing with people trying to win debt relief for people who you know have no money <laughs> in a world of extreme inequality. 
And so, you know, I've been dealing in a very direct way with the power structures, um, specifically in the United States where the, the work is focused. And so it feels like I'm still on the path of that film and, and engaging in this constant learning. It's interesting to look back on that movie. There's one aspect of that film that I might change if I was making it today. I mean, I think the basic messages of that film still hold, you know, that extreme inequality uh, sabotages democracy, that our democracy is riven by divisions based on race, uh, nationality, um, these questions of, you know, what are the boundaries of a community, right? All of those are still really relevant. But uh, the film, as you may remember, kind of goes back to ancient Greece, goes back to ancient Athenian democracy. Um, uh, and actually what, what I don't talk about in that film is part of what destroyed Athenian democracy was a pandemic, <laughs> was a plague. Interesting. The plague of Athens, basically, you know, the bubonic plague and how that uh, severely weakened uh, Athens and, 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 and hastened its decline. So there's some interesting resonances that, that are known only now, uh, you know, years, years after the fact, sort of clear to me. Um, <laughs> they're kind of interesting. <laughs> so that, uh, that feels relevant in this moment. You know, the question of like, well, how do you respond to a disaster that's sort of beyond the community's control? And I think, you know, it's hard not to think about these past four years without really thinking about COVID-19, which is now we're in our third year of that and how, um, you know, I think we failed to have what I would consider a democratic response. And for me, a democratic response, as what is democracy shows, you know, has to exceed the borders of the nation <laughs> and, you know, has to be truly internationalist and recognize that we actually live in a in a, in a global world and pandemics, uh, you know, pathogens do not respect national borders. So a lot to think about. I'm still questioning what is democracy? I'll never really know the answer. You seem to have reverted to this sort of nationalist, you know, like yeah. everyone for themselves, close our borders sort of approach to global problems, like not just the pandemic, but even climate change. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting th that we're not like embracing, you know, other countries, like trying to, I guess, work with other countries. We're just sort of, well, fighting with other countries, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think absolutely. And, you know, the, the film is structured so that it, it is both, you know, it has a kind of global perspective and then is grounded in these, these stories that the, the film traces and these individual, you know, characters that I find. And I made that more explicit in the companion book, which is called Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, where each chapter is a paradox and or a tension that's central to democracy. So freedom and equality, expertise and mass opinion, inclusion and exclusion, and one is the local and the global. I mean, the fact is, you have to do democracy where you are, where people rooted in places, but we live in a global world. You can't close yourself off to the fact of, again, climate change, as you said, pandemics, I mean, pathogens and carbon, they don't care about your borders. Right. These are completely arbitrary. These are political, cultural, ideological things, not things of, you know, science, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and that tension is one I think we're really failing to grapple with in an intelligent democratic, sustainable way. And, and I think we have backtracked since the film was made in ways that if I'd known them then I would find really devastating and disappointing. And, but, you know, here I am four years later, just kind of accepting it, bopping along, trying to do my best to push for progress where I can, but it's, it's, 
you know, it's, it's tragic because yeah, you can't revert, you can't revert to the local, you can't revert to the nation when we're facing these bigger dilemmas. Definitely. Well, today we're going to be talking about two films that uh, you suggested. Uh, there's one from the NFB called Encounter at Quacha House, which was, uh, came out in 1967. And then your film, You Are Not Alone, which I love the title, by the way, <laughs> uh, which you said- Double I get- entendre of it, right? Because it's A space L-O-A-N. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I should yeah. just say. And I, I mean, I think I was thinking of the Michael Jackson song, You Are Not Alone, from many years ago. And I don't know if that was playing a part in when you named it, but I just thought of that when I when I when I read it. But I think I think You Are Not Alone was kind of inspired by uh, Encounter at Quacha House. I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit about the influence that that film had on you. Mm. I mean, I love old NFB films. I wanted to work with the NFB from a young age, like literally being a teenager, which I think, you know, is, shows you the kinds of movies that I like and that I gravitate towards. And so it's always such a treat to go through the NFB archive and Encounter at Quacha House is, is sort of, I think, my favorite thing that I came across there. And it is in the tradition of sort of 1960s direct cinema in the sense that there are these, there are all kinds of films made that are these sort of very direct accounts of social movements. I mean, cause the 1960s, we have the civil rights movement. We have the burgeoning, you know, women's liberation movement. We have the movement against the war in Vietnam. There's just a lot of stuff happening culturally, a lot of organizing. And thankfully some people just like got in the middle of it and documented. And so these, that kind of cinema is like very interesting to me because I feel like it accurately represents what it is to organize. I feel like sometimes we think when we think of protest movements or movements for social change, we just think of like the protests in the street, you know, when actually there's all this conversation, all this getting to know each other, all this like hashing out the issues that, that makes those moments that are more visible and maybe more like exciting and iconic possible. So I personally gravitate to, to films that are about social movements and that show the, the deliberation, the intimacy, as opposed to sort of the iconic move, uh, iconic moments of protest. And the film is, uh, so Encounter Katya House is a conversation with a group of people, uh, most of them black, <laughs> the vast majority, talking about racism in Nova Scotia specifically. And uh it's just so fascinating because people's um, stories of, you know, discrimination, not being able to get jobs, uh, the uh, way racism affects their lives, you know, are just very moving and insightful and also just absolutely, you know, distressingly um, current sounding, contemporary sounding. <laughs> I mean, they're grappling with a lot of the same issues, like how do racism and, and um uh, wage discrimination, right? Like how do how does race and economics interact? Um, you know, is a present thing. Uh, where can people find power? Where can people ex- uh, raise their voices and actually, you know, have an impact? Uh, so that's it. Just felt it felt both um, this. Ama- it, it's both this amazing insight into the past, but also just a sort of sense of how. Um, uh, how we're still dealing with these these problems. So, and I love the format of this. The format is an encounter session. It's a conversation. So you kind of have these characters that are in the circle and you see people listening and responding. And that influenced uh, directly a scene in What is Democracy? A scene where I interviewed 
uh, a group of people in a circle who had been organizing uh, as part of what was the beginning of Black Lives Matter, uh, They a group that had formed after Trayvon Martin was killed in Florida. And then explicitly it influenced You Are Not Alone, which is actually a documentary about the group I helped found, the Debt Collective. So we organized a day-long circle conversation with debtors and professors from various universities and where people talked about um, the problem of uh, American education in which people have to take on tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars of debt just to go to school and um, and what that how that both sinks people financially individually but also how it corrupts education because then what you have to do is treat it as an investment <laughs> hope that it pays off and because of the way the economy is structured you know for a lot of folks they it's a debt trap and they can never get out of it. So the, that conversation is an homage to Encounter at Quacha House. Can you talk a bit about how you assembled this these group of uh, folks to uh, talk about debt? I mean, like you mentioned, you have academics, you have debtors. Um, I guess what went into bringing this group of people together? So part of why I really like these conversations is that it's an excuse to put people in dialogue who I want to hear conversate, right? Like I... I I want to hear what they're going to say to each other. It's like organizing a really good dinner party or something like that. Um, and, you know, specifically for you and I alone, I actually wanted these academics, some of whom are pretty prominent figures. So Wendy Brown, who actually is in What is Democracy? Stephanie Kelton, who's a very influential econ economist now. Barbara Ramsby, who's one of the leading historians of the civil rights movement. I wanted them to learn actually about the movement for student debt abolition and uh, and to so, you know, part of my agenda was to build solidarity between former students who are now debtors and faculty who are actually structurally in a position where they're indebting students <laughs> because that's the way the university is set up. Um, I also wanted a group in the room that could tell the story of how student debt cancellation came to be an issue in the United States. And so there are many representatives of something called the Corinthian 15, which was the uh, world's first student debt strike. And those students have actually won uh, through various creative strategies, uh, billions with a B, billions of dollars of debt cancellation from the government. So I wanted that, that story to be told too. Um, and, uh, and then I structured the conversation. So I tried to host it with a light touch. And so it kind of unfolds in three chapters. The first section is about debt and it's where people tell the stories of how Debt, this educational debt has burdened their lives, why they went into college, why they had to take on debt. Um, uh, Delaney Vandergrift, who's also in What is Democracy, makes a really powerful appearance in that section, along with others. This, and then uh, we broke, and then we came back for a second conversation, which actually passed it to the faculty, to the academics, to talk about how they see a... Uh, debt-driven university, meaning a, a university where instead of treating education as a public good, folks have to pay for it, <laughs> often by borrowing, how that corrupts the institution, changes the dynamics in the classroom, um, changes the attitudes of students, and actually how in the United States, one thing that's really interesting is that college was basically free until the student body started to diversify. So when it was mostly white men going to college, oh, education is a public good. It's free or you can pay for it with a minimum wage job. In the 60s, so right at that encounter with Quacha House moment, black students, brown students started enrolling and then reactionaries wanted to take that public funding away. 
And so then the only thing, the only possibility was to finance it through taking on loans. Wasn't it Ronald Reagan who said something about making people pay for it in that way you don't? Yeah, Ronald Reagan was the governor of California before he was in the States. He was the governor of California in the 60s, and he campaigned against student protesters and black power protesters. And one of his lines, and this is a quote, was, if make them pay and they'll think twice about carrying a picket sign. That's what it was. So yeah. absolutely, student debt was imposed. In, in other words, fees were raised. College had been free, again, when it was mostly white and male. And then once people started protesting, fees were imposed that people had to pay with with debt. Uh, and it was absolutely a means of social control. You know, we don't want folks having free time to think, to learn, to study whatever they want, and to carry a, carry a protest sign. So that's a, that history is touched on in the second section. And then the third section is called liberation. And it's where I tried to switch the conversation and invite people to think more about, well, what would their ideal university be? Um, and here I always hear, you know, we call for free college at the Debt Collective and I always hear that free is having a double meaning, free is in cost, but also free is in liberation, right? Like what, what kind of educational system would allow us to not only graduate without having to mortgage our futures with a lifetime of debt, but also enable us to be full, free, equal democratic citizens. Yeah. I, I, I noticed there's some parallels between uh, You Are Not Alone and Encounter at Kawasha House in the sense that, you know, not just that they're, they're a group of people talking about the problems that they're facing, but also that the problems are all systemic. You know, whether it's people being barred from businesses in Halifax due to their race or debt preventing people from succeeding, climbing the ladder, as, as it were. Uh, did those parallels uh, stick out to you as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and again, these are economic issues. I mean, I think sometimes we are encouraged to think about racism and economic inequality as separate. <laughs> and I think what you get from these two films is the fact that racial discrimination manifests in these economic forms, right? These obstacles. And, um, and, we, and then we have to think those things together. And they're actually even more connected because what the situation, you know, what's happened since Encounter at Quatcha House was filmed, specifically in the United States, but it's also a thing in Canada too, is people are told, instead of being told the truth, which is, you know what, you're actually being, you're actually being denied access to a good paying job because of racism, because uh, bosses don't want to pay you well, right? People were told, actually, it's you. You don't have the right skills. You don't have the right credentials. So you should go to school and then you'll be worthy and you'll be able to get a good paying job. And this is particularly true for black students who often have to get a college degree to compete with a white high school graduate, right? They have to subject themselves to a kind of degree inflation, like just to be able to compete on a somewhat even playing field. And what does that mean? That means they have to take on debt to compete <laughs> with someone, right, who, who has a high school degree. Uh, and so this, you know, economists call this different things. One is just credentialism. Um, it, it's an, an ideology that has encouraged people to enroll in higher education on the grounds that, you know, okay, you'll be rewarded with these jobs because what the problem with the labor market is you, not systemic discrimination. And I think we're at the point now, what, what is it, 50, 60 years later, where we're going, 
whoa, that was such a mistake because actually you don't fix the job market and make it fair and undiscriminatory by just creating more college degree holders, right? What you have to do is change the job market. <laughs> you have to raise, raise the minimum wage. You have to strengthen unions. You have to invest in, in fields that are, you know, uh, well-paid and hopefully, you know, uh, good for society, right? Invest in green jobs or invest in the teaching and healthcare professions, et cetera, et cetera. Like in other words, these are systemic issues and the systemic solution that was set upon, which is to push people into higher education was not the right solution. And it's created the student debt crisis that now people like me are trying to solve. And th so those things are really connected. If we want good paying jobs uh, and we want racial equality in the workplace, then we need to address the problem of employment. Education can give you job training. You know, yes, we want people who are doctors to have gone to medical school, but education shouldn't just be job training. It should be something about this issue of democracy, about learning as a good in itself, not just as career training. Like, so let's separate those two fields, address them both, always with an eye towards um, elevating racial and economic justice. I want to ask you a bit about the discourse in the film uh, in the sense that, you know, these are all, in both films, we see people actually talking to each other in a room. And most of the time, I, I find a lot of the discourse on politics happens online, on Twitter or on Facebook, God forbid. But, <laughs> you know, it's a, a lot of times it's, it's, it's in these, like, uh, in, in social media. And I wonder if there's, a, if there's I guess, in your view, I guess, what is, what is something that in-person in discourse does that maybe online doesn't do as well? Yeah, it, well, I think it's so, it is so important to be in a room with people and having that exchange. It's, it's interesting, like going back to sort of philosophy, which is what informed what is democracy. I mean, democratic philosophers, political theorists have always emphasized the, uh, the issue of deliberation, of debate, right? And, and recognize that de deliberation is really important to democracy. Um, I wrote an essay inspired by what is democracy called the right to listen. And, and what I, I think one thing I learned as I was filming what is democracy, and you see me um, also paying tribute to it in You Are Not Alone, is that especially in the United States, people think deliberation is speech. That's why there's so much emphasis on free speech, don't censor me, you know, speech, speech, speech. And what I wanted to say in that essay, and what I try to say without saying it in my films is, well, there's speech, but there's also listening. Like conversation is both. Deliberation is both. You have to, you have to speak and be heard, but, that, but you should also hear. You also have to listen to others. Listening is really hard on these social media platforms precisely because our hearing is actually what's for sale, right? Mm. Because we're targeted with ads. We're targeted with um, messages from people who pay for it. So yeah, I'm trying to show in these films um, uh, the political dimension of, of listening and dialogue and people learning with, from each other. And that means you know, that even though I'm present in both films, I'm not like the traditional documentary host who's like, oh, hi, I'm Astrid Taylor, and I'm going to take you to see, you know, this, this uh, hidden world or like tell you what to think. Instead, I'm facilitating others. I'm trying to, to, to create space so that other people, uh, you know, can have, can have a voice and be heard. And so I often, you know, even cut away to like shots of myself listening keenly to show that, you know, that 
the the director of this film listening as is, is as important as the director of this film like being witty or being smart. <laughs> That's interesting because yeah, I mean, we all think of the director as as the person who is the auteur of the film who's sort of directing others, but yeah, it's interesting that you come at it more as like a listening is more as just as important, maybe more important than just telling people what to do ex- exactly. Yeah, and I think you know I'm. I mean, I'm pretty confident in my smarts. I've written lots of books and I've made my movies, you know, and I, I think, I just think, but I think as a culture and we put too much emphasis on the speaker, on the, the person at the podium. And that also means like on the, the uh, prime minister or on the president, you know, whatever, right, the representative. And, and so I think it's very detrimental to democracy because democracy by definition means the demos, the people <laughs> wielding power together. And so we have to have, a collectivity. And it, you know, it's hard. I, 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 this is a challenge I think for filmmaking and for podcasting and for writing. it's like, how do you have a collective, a protagonist that is a collectivity? How do you tell a story that's not just about one person or one hero, but about people doing things together? Um, and when I say doing things together, that's actually another ancient Athenian definition of democracy. They understood democracy as the capacity to do things together. And so if we're going to do things together, we have to have dialogue. We have to speak and we have to listen. Um, and we have to not put one person at the center of the narrative. And so I'm trying to also, you know, in my organizing and in all of the various like forms of media I engage in to push back against the false story of like the lone, the lone, um, protagonist, the lone hero, the lone visionary. <laughs> Did it. And, and lone by lone, you mean, like the sole person, right? Like not yeah, just yeah, not, the yeah. sole person. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's why the entendre of "you are not alone" yeah, is powerful, right? Because, um, you know, that it's it's trying to point to people. Uh, you know, the, there are all sorts of forces that keep people alone and isolated, and not in democratic formation. And and part of it is, I think, this ideology of the hero or of you know, the, okay, the person who does democracy is the prime minister or is the president. And then there's all these forces that we're up against in the debt collective, which are the shame and stigma of being poor, of being in debt. That keeps people isolated. It keeps people from telling their stories, keeps people from having a voice. So there's all these there's all these sort of ways in which we are um, isolated and how that collectivity I'm getting at is sort of undermined or it's it, it's more difficult to manifest it than it than I think it should be. So, I'm, you know, I think trying to push against that on all fronts. Well, you shot that film, I think, just as the pandemic was about to start, if I'm not mistaken. And I yeah. guess I, I wonder yeah. how that how the pandemic has sort of impacted your organizing work. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I was actually struck by the fact that that film was shot on February 17th, which is actually it was revealed like a year later that Donald Trump was on a phone call sort of expressing full knowledge that coronavirus was serious and that it was transmitted through the air, <laughs> all these things that would take months and months for the public to actually, you know, uh, be told in a clear uh, indirect way. Um, what's interesting is that at the Dead Collective, um, the pandemic actually sort of played to our strengths. And here's why. The Dead Collective is a union for debtors. So we're very much inspired by labor unions. Uh, and of course, you know, a labor union is workers who share a workplace coming together to demand better wages, better treatment from the boss. The thing about debtors, though, is debtors don't share a workplace. Debtors, you can't find other debtors on a factory floor. You, as debtors, you share a creditor. Maybe you all owe money to a certain bank or to the Department of Education in the case of student loans. 
So that means we've always been distributed. And that's part of the challenge of debtor organizing is, well, how do you find people if you don't share a workplace? But part of the power is when you do find them, they live in cities, they live in the country, <laughs> they're old, they're young, they're black, they're white, they're male, they're female, and they're they they share what they share in common is their economic situation, their indebtedness, and so I, in a way, I you know our movement since you are not alone with shot has actually gained a tremendous amount of speed and power, um, you know to the point where I think we're on the brink of winning uh, a hugely significant amount of debt cancellation of student debt cancellation. Um, because yeah, because we weren't, our, our, we never were sort of focused on uh, place-based um, uh, power building because it just, that doesn't make sense with the kind of financial power we're trying to, to wield. And student debt cancellation, that's something that, if I'm not mistaken, that's something the Biden administration could do through executive order. Is that right? Yes. And you only know that because of us. We literally developed the legal theory and popularized, yeah, the idea that um, that he can cancel student debt with the flick of a pen. And so that has been one of the really interesting elements of our work is having to be both a kind of grassroots pressure building movement. So we, we have done big street protests. We have been um, doing direct actions, but also having a kind of think tank component where we sort of do the government's homework for it and say, actually, you can't cancel debt. And here's how. And in fact, we wrote the executive order for you. You just need to sign it. Um, and we have sort of, yeah, we've boxed the current administration into a point to, to a place where they've had to extend uh, the COVID moratorium on student loans six times now, even though we know they didn't want to do it. And that, uh, quote, turning on payments was a top priority. Um, and we're yeah, cancellation is seriously on the table. Uh, so it's been interesting to see how much actually momentum we've built in the two years since you were alone alone was shot. You know, when of course, like everyone, when COVID first hit, I was like, what the hell is gonna happen on every front? I had no idea that that our time, you know, was that the things were about to heat up. <laughs> Do you have more faith in social movements to get progressive change done than say the electoral system? You know, I'm very, um, how would I describe myself? I don't see things as an either or. So, I, And I think you see that in my book that I just mentioned, the companion book to what is democracy, the fact that it's all about these tensions and paradoxes. So to me, I could have written a chapter that was on inside outside. <laughs> you know, the fact that we can't just be on one side of the binary because what's the point of just being outside if you don't change what's inside? But what's the point of just being inside if you don't, if, if you're, if you, you know, insiders need social movements to create space <laughs> so that they can actually push the envelope, right? Like, and so these things are not in opposition. Um, we have to be able to think about them the, together. But I do believe that um, an inside only technocratic elite focus on politics does not work. I mean, you know, we could take a whole podcast going through all the examples of how that has fallen short. I think we do need to build lasting power for, uh, for regular people. We need institutions where people can become politicized, where people can um, uh, see themselves as agents. <laughs> and so we have, to, you know, we have to do both. Um, but I do really believe that social movements and that outsiders are who set the democratic agenda. Mm. Everything 
you know, again, you know, speaking as a progressive, but the things that we take pride in, we go, okay, well, things are hard, but at least we've made social progress over these years. All those ideas came from outsiders, from often from people who are overtly excluded from the democratic process and who wanted not just access, they just they they didn't just want inclusion, but by demanding to be included, they transformed the system and made it more democratic, right? So we're always fighting for inclusion, not in an oppressive system, but trans inclusion that will transform it and make it more democratic. So yeah, I do really, I guess my heart's with the outsiders, <laughs> but I know that I know that we still need to work um, on the inside and engage in electoral strategies where we can without getting totally sidetracked by them. And uh, of course, I mean, it's tough. It's everything is a tough balance and we have to constantly be reevaluating our strategy and adjusting to changing conditions. I mean, I had never thought about how do you strategize as an activist in a pandemic until I had to do that. So who knows what's coming, what will be coming next and what new challenges we'll have to adapt to. Well, Ashley, you've given us so much to think about. I want to thank you once again for coming on OnDocs. And uh, we went a little longer than I thought, than we promised, but I thought there was so many things to ask you. So I'm, I'm glad you stuck with us. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, I'm really sorry. And I feel like my I'm so in this movement right now that I'm more kind of jumbled than usual, but it's kind of exciting. But uh, who knows? Check with me like by September 1st. Maybe we'll have one some student debt cancellation. Oh, I'm optimistic. Yeah, well, I'm yeah. optimistic. I hope so. I, 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 I mean, I, I didn't know that it was that it came from your uh, group that 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 the president could uh, sign a executive order. I heard that on Brianna Joy Gray's podcast, which I know you've been on before. Uh, oh she's, yeah, she's no, talked no, no. About that I a mean, lot. it's yeah, and that is that's. I think it's such an important strategy is to popularize and to bring to the uh, bring to the debate all of the power that our governments have that they're not using you know, that they could use to do good and to help people. Because, you know, one thing insiders love to say is like, my hands are tied, I can't do anything. And so for us, it's just been really pushing back against and saying, you're totally wrong. It's actually this easy. It's literally a flick of the pen and working our way up the political chain to the point where we have the Senate majority, Chuck Schumer, we have Elizabeth Warren, we have podcasters like Brianna Joy Gray saying the truth. Um, but movements, yeah, we have to do that you know, cause there's, there's, and that's just one issue, student debt cancellation. I mean, believe me, the government, the people who are in charge in Canada, in the United States, there's a lot of good they could do. Yeah. Um, but we need to make them do it. Are you going to make another film soon? I hope so. I mean, do you want to know my, what I really want to do? I want to make a, I mean, I, I want to win some student debt cancellation and go on hiatus from this and make a film about the more than human world, ideally with my sister as a kind of co-collaborator, my sister, Sonora Taylor. So another philosophy documentary, but about um, maybe rights of nature and our relationship. Like uh, I, I wrote a little bit about this in the democracy book too, like, you know, expanding what's the next horizon for democracy and what bringing the non-human world into the demos. <laughs> so I want to, I want to, I want to make something super weird. Ah, I'd love to see it. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds awesome. Yeah. I mean, there's so much, I've been like slowly researching just like attitudes towards animals, like even in the middle ages. I mean, also I, I'm, I've got like a, I've got a folder, folder going, but right now I'm just, I'm so sucked into this and I'm, I, I'm someone who like pathologically sticks to something. So I need to, I need, uh, 
I need to step back from the activism so I can go back to wearing a filmmaker hat. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time, Asha. It was really good talking with you again. Really, thanks for having me on. It was oh, cool to pleasure. be reminded I was the first podcast. So anyway, yeah, Absolutely. send it to me when it's done and I'll tweet it. And we so will. will the Debt Collective. Okay, bye y'all. Yeah, thanks, Asha. Take care. And that's the podcast. Special thanks to Astra Taylor for coming on the show. You can check out You Are Not Alone on YouTube. And why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us. It helps new listeners find the show. You can also follow me on Twitter at ColinEllis81. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew Amara, senior producer Katie O'Connor, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hollowell, and executive producer Laurie Few. We'll catch you at the next screening.